1: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
2: Well, it's another word in your ear and surely our first with someone who was with The Beatles and the Maharishi in India, uh, who inspired a hit record, who's uh, just published uh, interviews with 65 musicians and married Mick Fleetwood twice. It's Jenny Boyd. Jenny, fantastic to see you.
3: Well, hello.
2: (laughs) Very nice (laughs) to see you in the world. Come on to your book.
3: Yeah, quite an introduction.
2: There, we're going to come on to your book, um, Icons of Rock, in a moment. But first, just a bit about your early life. So where, where were you brought up? Was it Guildford? Was that right?
3: No, in um, in Kenya.
2: Okay, oh, Kenya, sorry. Yeah. It's <laughs> miles out. Away. <laughs> yeah, no,
3: my, I was born in Guildford, but my parents moved to Kenya when I was just a few months old. And um, Patty, my sister, and my brother Colin... And, um, and then we had our, 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 our next, um, my next sister was actually born in Kenya. So we were there, I think for my first six years.
2: Right. When did you move to, to England then? Six, when I was six. When, when yeah. you were six. And, yeah. and w- can you remember things like the first records you bought?
3: Yes. Uh, well, actually, because I, I, because um, Patty was a little bit older than me, <clears throat> she had enough money to go and buy a record. And so it was um, Bill Haley, um, mm-hmm. See You Later, Alligator. <laughs> and I just fell in love. I must have been about eight, seven, eight, probably fell in love with rock and roll. And all I wanted to do was dance. And then Patty and I would start jiving together and, you know, sort of... Um, I just, from a very early age, knew I loved music and the beat and what it did to you.
2: Can you remember the first group you saw?
3: Um, like live? Yeah. The first group I saw actually was a group called the Shanes and Mick mm. Fleetwood was one, the drummer in the Shanes.
2: Oh, right. This the,
3: of...
0: C-H-E-Y-N-E-S. Yes, That's right. the
3: Shanes.
0: I've got a record by them. You haven't really, Down
3: the river, something about the river?
0: I think I've got a record called I Can Tell. Oh, okay. It's on a a compilation. Anyway, it doesn't
3: matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so when I was still going to school, um, apparently I heard later, Mick had said to himself, he'd see me in the little coffee shop after school with my friends and said, that's the girl I'm going to marry.
2: (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) How old would he have been?
3: 16. We were 16. Age. Yeah. And you
2: were what, about 15 well, or I don't know.
3: No, no, no. They were the same age.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Incredible.
3: Yeah. But my absolute love um, when I was probably like 10 or 11 was Buddy Holly. There was a girl in our school who, um, who used to play guitar. And every break time, I'd go in and watch her playing her guitar. And it was always every single Buddy Holly song. So, um, yeah.
0: So you never took it up yourself? You never uh, attempted to try music yourself?
3: There's still time, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) There is not there I always have a guitar in the room or or George once gave me a sitar or I've tried the violin and the piano and every instrument you can imagine, but it doesn't stick. But writing has always stuck with me ever since I was little.
0: It's funny how different it is with musicians, isn't it, really?
3: Yeah, Yeah. they just know it
0: they They can kind of they can perceive patterns, can't they really quickly mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm.
0: Uh, no, whereas you and me would look at it forever would never be able to do it
3: No, oh, no, no
0: right, right
3: I appreciate music and I love to dance right mm-hmm.
0: right so you you started modeling at what age
3: I started modeling um uh I think I must have been just turned seventeen. Um, and uh, it was actually, I didn't mean to, I didn't necessarily want to be a model. It's just that the boyfriend I had then, um, because Mick and I hadn't got together then, uh, he, um, they were, the stains had broken up. So he was painting Fole and Tuffin, who are the new fashion designers. He was painting their showroom. And they said, well, we've lost our fashion, you know, our model to show clothes, our house model. And he said, oh, I'll ask my girlfriend. I was still at school. So I left school the next day and went to go and have an interview and never told my mother. And um, they said, oh, yeah, we'd love you to start. Then you're just the right size and all this kind of stuff. And um, so that's how I So you became
2: a professional model from that point, as it were?
3: From that point, yes. Not photographic yet. I was just the house model. And then after a while they said, uh, you know, all the – Editors of big glossy magazines would come and watch me doing my, you know, showing off the clothes. And they'd say, Oh, we want to photograph Jenny in this or that. that. And that's how, then I was told, Go and get yourself a photographic um, modeling agency. Right.
0: So, first of all, it was like in the shop, was it basically showing stuff to potential customers?
3: Not customers, to magazines, oh, to okay. glossy magazines. And then we, uh, I went to New York and Patty came as well and showed the full and Tuffin clothes. and you know, it was sort of um, modelling stuff.
0: Right. Was that because they were, particularly at that time, they wanted a kind of new look? They wanted a new generation with I'll different haircuts? I, well, and so they on. were
3: a generation. I mean, they were a new generation because they had trouser suits and nobody else did, not even Mary Quant. But they were <laughs> sort of alongside Mary Quant. And I loved the clothes I, and they were all made for me. So I was sort of the best-dressed 17-year-old probably going, you know, <laughs> and um, it was fun. They were great to work with and I really, in, really enjoyed being with them and then branched out and, you know, everything everything then took off.
0: So you completely you'd left school then?
3: Oh, yeah. I hadn't even mentioned it to my mum, but I don't know if she noticed because she had six children. Um, and Patty had probably already left home and we were in this tiny little place and so it was probably a relief that um you know I was kind of about to fly the nest.
1: <laughs>
0: do, you, do you ever think that's remarkable looking back at that how how um in the sixties how parents kind of didn't didn't hover over their children all the time, did they?
3: You're absolutely right. No. I mean she never mentioned the fact that I'd left school. You know, she must have gathered it. <laughs> But you, knew, you just felt we had the freedom to do whatever we wanted. But when I remember living, you know, growing up in Africa, there was no parenting there. We were sort of feral, really. Yeah, yeah. That's what so, suited us, Patty and me, with the rock and roll world, you know, right. sort of like kids so, who never really grow up.
0: So what was your first meeting with the rock and roll world, so to speak?
3: Well, it was actually um, a friend of mine at school called Dale had a major crush on Mick. And uh she said, Oh, you must meet this drummer. He's very skinny and tall and um and he's just wonderful. And that's when Mick was like 16, 17. And uh so uh I went to it was the the coffee, it was called the coffee mill in Notting Hill Gate. And I met Mick and he said, Oh, we're going off to uh, do go and play a show in um, Brentwood. And so, so on Saturday, so do you do girls want to come with us? My friend was kicking me under the table. So, you know, we said, yes, yes. But um, that was my first live performance I'd ever seen with the Shanes. And I loved it. I'd never seen live music before. And it was sort of a lot of the blues stuff, um, you know, Muddy Waters and um, Johnny Hooker. And um, that was my first.
2: Right, right. So what Uh, kind of other people can you remember seeing in the the club world, Central London club world?
3: Well, when, when Mick and I got together... Um, and Patty and George were together. Uh, we'd all we'd all go. They would take us, or George and Patty would be going to the Ad Lib, or um, the Crazy Elephant, Scotch of St James's, and that was wonderful. And that's where you'd see, you know, you'd, I'd sit next to Keith Moon or you know whoever was there. But it was very cool. There was nobody like you know who oh, can I have your autograph <laughs> sort of thing going on, because you're young and you know we're all cool, and. Um, the music was Motown because nobody could get Motown in England, but they'd obviously managed to get the Motown records from America. Um, and that was fantastic. You know, that was just, um, and of course we danced.
0: Right. So you danced dancing, was it just the girls dancing or the girls dancing? No, so the,
3: Mick and there? I would dance together. He was a great dancer. But I would get to the point where I'd grab anybody, you know, because I just loved to dance and I loved the music.
0: Right, right. So what was it like, I mean, during Beatlemania, having your sister dating George Harrison and being in Hard Day's Nights,, I mean, Was yes. that massively well, exciting to you or was it just kind of standard?
3: No, I think at that age I was more kind of into the sixth form boys and having crushes. Um, but so Patty met George and yeah, you know, the family was, wow, that's, that's fun. And then, but I remember when um, Patty asked me if I'd like to meet him, she, she was staying, um, she was sort of uh, sharing a place with her friend in Chelsea. Um, I remember just being so amazed because he looked so small really. And sort of, so, you know, so sweet and friendly and not at all like a big pop star because of course they look larger than life, you know, all um, the um, in magazines and stuff. And when he came round to our house, he was just very sweet and very normal, just like you know Patty bringing her new boyfriend round. Except he'd be talking about the tour, the American tour, or um, about John, or you know.
0: And how did your parents yeah. react to that?
3: Well, My mother was living by herself. She was very excited. So I imagine she must have been in her late 30s then maybe um but I remember yeah there was sort of a, a sort of excitement about it
2: right so when he came to the uh, family home also, did, were people aware that he was there were there were the fans kind of following him and all that kind no, of stuff
3: no no because it was sort of earlier than that and it was in Wimbledon it was Wimbledon park and it was a line of um little houses i mean probably a uh, curtain or two might have twitched you know because uh, (laughs) because he arrived in his e-type jaguar and just parked it outside but they probably didn't know who was inside
2: yeah yeah and you got a job working didn't you with apple at one stage
3: yeah so what happened is that i went to san francisco in 1967 beginning of 1967 with no idea about flower power or anything that was about to burst so I lived there for six months and, of course, loved all the music because it was, you know, Janis Joplin and Big Brother and the Holding Company and there was um, Jefferson Airplane and all those great um, San Francisco bands. And um, and I went to the Monterey Pop Festival and um, that was the first festival of its time. And then I'd asked Patty and George to come over, um, that this is incredible here. And then finally when they came over in August, and all the good hippies had gone and all the sort of um, mm. school kids had been told to tune in, turn on and drop out. So we, everybody was just mobbed and it was just a disaster. <laughs> and I felt rather bad because it'd be my idea for them to come to San Francisco. But, when, but they decided I, I needed to come home. You know, I'd been there six months. And so I stayed with them for a while. And that was when Maharishi came to London. And so we all went to go and... Um, see him, meet him, and go and listen to what he was saying about... You went to Bangor, didn't you? Yeah, then after that, we all went to Bangor.
2: But in Bangor, that was when the news arrived about the death of of Brian, wasn't it?
3: Exactly, exactly. How how, how
2: was that? How did you...
3: Because we were all sort of on a high, really. You know, we got our new mantra, we were doing our meditation. Um, Maharishi was talking about the Beatles going to India to learn how to be initiators... And then suddenly, bam, you know, this news, and Brian was actually meant to be coming to Bangor. So that was shocking. And in a way, you know, I saw all the paparazzi interviewing them, but they would, Maharishi told them, you know, that they must mourn him, that Brian was happy where he was, and all this. So I felt that in a way, they had to kind of suffocate those feelings of grief, in a way, because now they were meditators. But anyway, so we, I I drove, Patty and I and George, we all drove back together. And as I was getting out, because I was getting out in London, George got out of the car and he said, you know, we'd love you to come to India with us. Um, But India wasn't until until February. But meanwhile, I'd been asked to work in the Apple boutique because it was about to open. All right. And that was was where Donovan came down. And um, I'd met Donovan before. And he wanted to know about my trip in San Francisco, about Maharishi. And, you know, he was very curious. And um, and then at one point he asked me if I'd like to go over, have lunch with his manager. And that's when he said he'd written a song for me. And uh, he played Jennifer Juniper for me. And it was very um, slightly embarrassing because I didn't know where to look. And it obviously meant he'd got a crush on me.
2: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty forward, isn't it? I've written a song about you. <laughs> yeah, really. I think your intentions are fairly clear there. <laughs> yeah. <I am. laughs>
3: so yeah, so it was a one. It was a lovely time. And then you know, in February, then, um, I went with Patty and George, and I think John and Cynthia went with us too, to 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 um, Rishikesh.
2: Just going back for a second to the song. How did that feel when that? Because that was a that was a, a a bit of a hit. You know, that was on the radio all the time and. How did that well, feel when that was knowing it was a song about you?
3: I felt, I felt so. Um, I don't know because I must have been what 18, 19. and I just felt really. I'd never had a song written for me before, and um, so <laughs> most I people felt haven't. Flattered. It's sort of embarrassed and flattered.
2: It's a very <laughs> select club. Much. Peggy Sue, these various people who are actually mentioned in the title. Incredible. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. And it's a lovely song, and I've heard it over the years many times, whether it's in a lift, you know, or supermarket. Or I hear people who say, people who tell me that they've called their daughter after Juniper, you know, after Jennifer Juniper. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's it's lovely. Do you, ever, resp- extraordinary. Sorry, Do you
0: ever reflect on that? I mean, you just take that year that you've just described, you going to San Francisco you know um the, the 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 beginning of the festival's george coming you know the is she going to rishikesh and that's quite a short period of time really isn't it it's yeah. just it's about a year isn't it effectively yeah. do you, and people still we are asking you about it now and people still write books about it and talk about it and make films about it do you think yeah. do you ever think that's extraordinary that was my 19th year or whatever it was you know yeah.
3: Exactly. And when you're that age, or probably any age, you don't think one day this will be a kind of iconic time, do you? It's just Mm -hmm. going one thing to the next. You know, I was a searcher, you know, I was kind of, I'd had what I experienced a sort of big awakening before I went to San Francisco. And, um, And so we were all kind of on the same page. And in a way, we were looking for some deeper meaning to life you know, having been the dolly bird and all this kind of stuff, suddenly things changed. And I think it changed for many people. There was a kind of zeitgeist and that was the whole thing, you know, in, in San Francisco, it was just, um, just a, a different, there was something happening that was suddenly music became much more important. What Bob Dylan was saying was very important. What the Beatles were saying, all you need is love. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. We don't have to search too much further, you know, and, uh, it was a time that a lot of people were kind of tuned in with each other.
2: Mm. Tell us more about Rishikesh, because that's an incredible uh, thing to have been involved in. Um, and there was you, and there was, uh, i trying to think who else was there? Mia Farrow was there, wasn't she?
3: Yeah, Mia Farrow. Donovan,
2: uh, Donovan Mike Love. By.
3: Mike Love, yeah. And, um, and everybody was sort of there for the same reason. So although, you know, our bungalow that we had, the sort of beetle bungalow and, you know, Cynthia and Patty and Jane Asher sometimes, um, you know, we'd all sit on the roof of the bungalow while they'd start with their guitars, you know, making up songs. And uh, and it was all songs from what was going on. Say so if John couldn't sleep, then he'd be singing about, I couldn't, you know, whatever that song was, I couldn't sleep last night. And he'd pick up his guitar and they'd all start playing. Or Dear Prudence was yeah. Mia Farrow's sister, uh, Bungalow Bill. You know, were, everything was what was going on in the ashram. I think we must have been there about two and a half months.
2: That's interesting. So they were doing that in public. I mean, they, they were sitting there with you and writing the songs. They didn't go off in their own to a corner and do, they did it with, no, kind of, with an no. audience. room really. it
3: was just us, you know. So it was, it was just the three of them. And then you know, Patty and Cynthia and I just kind of you know chatting quietly or doing whatever. And and because it was the morning sun, they and but you didn't. There was no one sort of standing nearby or having a listen as well. It was private. People were meditating.
0: I mean, in terms of music, it was apart from anything else, it was an incredibly fortuitous break, wasn't it? You know, it was effectively. Yeah. Uh, off-site two months to you know you could write a bunch of a, a, a lot of songs
3: yes yes and i think george recorded something quite a few years later that he'd written in in um, Rishikesh.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah
3: it was an extraordinary time i could have just lived there forever and, and magic know,
2: alex know. was out there wasn't he i think
3: Oh, my God, he was. What was your I, feeling? Because he's
2: become a bit of a figure now in the Beatles folklore. Is it, a lot of people think it was kind of the one moment they rather took their eye off the ball and let this eccentric and rather unqualified guy in. But what did you think of it?
3: I thought he was very jealous because John and Cynthia, I, she- I rented a room from him in his, um, in his house uh, just for a little while before I was going away before I left for India and um, John and Cynthia came the night before and he was trying to dissuade John saying why don't you go to my guru Um, and I think he was very jealous and I had the feeling when I saw him in India that he'd come to make trouble in some way.
2: Did, what did you think about the the, the Maharishi incident? I mean, did, did a lot of people thought that that was maybe made up and that John just wanted that as an excuse to go home early or whatever? Do you think the Maharishi, you know, was behaved in a kind of a uh, I
3: think controversial manner? Is a lot of things all hit at the same time? I think you know we'd all been there a long time, um, and I think you know Maharishi might he was a bit. St- I was never a huge fan of Maharishi. I love the um, I love the meditation, <clears throat> but um, I think obviously things were going on, and and, um, and I think probably they were ready to go as well. But I, I but I also think that there was a lot of you know because especially for <clears throat> George and John, they trusted Maharishi, and um, and maybe finally they realized that actually he wasn't. Who they thought he was, he, you know. I think um, it was a shame. But then I know that later on, because I, I had, when I was living in Los Angeles, Georgia said he was uh, he'd seen Maharishi again, and they'd sorted things out.
0: Right, right. I suppose yeah. it, it's also just a reminder, just of how how quickly things moved in the nineteen sixties, wasn't it? Yeah, you know, I mean, I
3: mean, <clears throat> yeah.
0: Whole lifetimes in a year, really.
3: Exactly.
0: Compared to to nowadays.
3: Yeah, it was an extraordinary time. time.
0: So Fleetwood Mac, the extended family of Fleetwood Mac, lived in this legendary place called Kiln House.
3: Tell us about that. What happened is that we'd all been out on the road, and that's when Peter Green said that he was leaving. And um, really shocking and uh, shocking news. And I think Mick was the one that was – he was like the pot of glue – he wanted to keep everybody going, even though Peter had left. So he it was his idea that we should move into this house, kiln house, that actually we knew the people who um, who lived there. They moved out. Everybody got rid of their flats in London. And, uh, and then we lived there as a kind of a commune. And there was a space to um, a big room where they could do the um, playing and rehearsing because they had an American tour to go to. And it was right at the last minute that they asked Chris if she would join the band. And while we were there, um, Chris and I, they, they because Peter had been their main songwriter, and Danny Kerwin really struggled with writing songs. So there was one um, afternoon when Chris and I, together, we wrote July Judy. And, uh, and another time after Kiln House, <clears throat> we moved to a big house called Benifolds in Hampshire, where we, it was the same thing, communal living, and it kept everyone together. Mick was right. And sometimes, you know, the road crew would come and stay there and crash there. It was, um, I think we were known in the village as rather sort of those people up on the hill in their big house.
2: Yeah, um, Well, you with traffic were kind of pioneers in that whole getting it together in the country type of thing. Yes. Weren't you?
3: And it worked. Yeah. It did. You know, they stayed together for quite a few tours and then Bob Welch, um we we met up with bob welt from los angeles then he joined the band so it was a kind of you know going round and round different people coming and going
2: but the time that when they moved to america that because you saw you were there for obviously with the the time when they 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 met up with um with um, stevie nicks and and lindsey buckingham but you also saw the kind of difficult time in america and they were trying to get established what was that like so the real highs and lows
3: yeah, well, it was difficult because their manager had pretend put on a bogus band and call them Fleetwood Mac. So mm. then they were suing their manager. They couldn't go out on the road or they couldn't record. I can't remember. I think they couldn't go out on the road till this was sorted out. So they decided that we'd go to Los Angeles, maybe just for six months, to see if they could actually make it big um, while we were there. And it was hard. You know, there was a lot of sort of legal stuff going on. And then um, Bob Welch decided he'd had enough, he wanted to leave. And that's when Mick was actually looking for a place to record and came across the sound of Stevie and Lindsay. He found them and um, they came over to our house. And I remember first meeting them, how just how fresh they were. It was like sort of definitely, they were very friendly and very open. And when I heard them rehearsing, it was obvious they were going to be huge. There was something about the chemistry of them, and the harmonies, and of course they were songwriters too. So it was, you know, the perfect, the perfect um, combination.
0: So before that, there must have been times when you sat there and thought, "This is never going to happen." You know, they're, they're going to keep banging their heads against the wall. They're never going to be played on the radio or whatever. I and never uh,
3: that. I you never,
0: never that. really.
3: Oh. No. Um, you know, ever since I'd met Mick, you know, I knew he was, um, you know, whatever band he was in, that it was a really good band. Whether Peter Green was in it or whether it wasn't, there wasn't ever, and it's honest truth, even though we had two children, you know, that uh, I thought, oh, this is just not going to happen.
0: Get a proper job. You never thought Get a that. Get proper <laughs>
3: job. Well, I, I mean, I've never been asked that question before, actually, but it never occurred to me.
0: Really? Never?
3: Yeah, ever.
0: That's incredibly optimistic. He had bills to pay and children to look after and so forth.
2: And
3: how it worked out.
2: Right. Well, maybe Mick was very relaxed about his attitude to it as well because the impression I always get is it must be so hard for anyone being, you know, married to a, a, a rock musician, because there seem to be kind of two gears. One is that that they're not appreciated enough and they're worrying about their career. And the other is that they're massively appreciated and everybody in the world wants to talk to them yeah. and it's quite hard to get in. it. So yeah. both those things must be quite hard to manage.
3: Well, that's right. But they would always tour. I mean, they had a following.
2: Right.
3: So when Pete was in the band, they had a following, you know, because I'd go on the road with them in America and, you know, they went down well. They had a falling, but it wasn't as big as when Stevie and Lindsay got in there.
0: Yeah. No, sure.
3: And then they, everything changed.
0: They are a unique institution, aren't they? Flew they back, because the kind of well, they're named after the rhythm section kind of thing.
3: Yeah.
0: We, not the That's, guys at the front. The no, people at the front no. have changed. Yeah. But the motor has remained. Yeah. Those two guys at
3: the back. But that was very Peter Green. You know, he never wanted it to be him, his name. And because John B and Mick were there in the early days, he wanted that to be the name.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And
3: I think it kind of took the onus off him.
1: you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
3: He was very sort of humble, I think, in that way.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. See, in your book, you, you've talked to lots of musicians. Um, and obviously you've had... You've known a lot of musicians. You've seen a lot of bands come and go. What have you learned about musicians and rock bands? Is there anything that you you think yeah, what you, patterns you, emerge? Yes.
3: Yeah, what patterns emerge? What was interesting because seventy when I first wrote this book, and there's obviously there's more people in it in this new this new version, and there's more of the interviews in this new version. You know, because I just took snippets out of the interviews for the initial one. What I learned was they, the things that they had in common is that there was, with all of them, there was this sense of humility, which is interesting because they're on stage and they're, you know there's lots of room for egos, and um, but there was a sense of humility. And I think a lot of it came down to the fact that if they were writing um, lyrics, sometimes things would just come through them as if they weren't part of it. And it's what this some psychologist, Abraham Maslow, called the peak experience. And so they all kind of, uh, or the muse, you know, it's the same kind of thing. But they all kind of bowed down to that. Um, so they had this humility. They'd all ex- they'd all experienced this sort of zone, going into this zone, whether they were playing or whether they were writing music. And... Um, What else? The other thing I found with these musicians, they'd all had um, nurturing. They'd had parents or grandparents who were very nurturing and encouraged their creativity. Um, I did ask them if they thought that we all had the potential to be creative. And they said, yes, you know, in some way we all have that.
2: Oh, well, we it. do, but not necessarily to write songs of that calibre. So, right?
3: No, in different know. ways, in different ways. Yeah.
2: But I thought you all know. that stuff about creativity was, was, was so interesting. And, and you could argue, actually, the Beatles invented that whole thing. Before that, bands weren't expected to write their own songs, and after that, for better, and in some cases worse, they all did. You know, But there are two kind of main attitudes aren't there there's the Graham Nash attitude which talks about not even being aware of where he was when he writes songs he's so kind of a, right. you know he's like a, a conduit you know receiving these things from above and then there's a very much more prosaic view of I think it was Jackson Brown who talks about the Dylan line hanging around the inkwell he said you can't yes. just sit around <laughs> waiting for inspiration you've got to no. sit down and you've got to work Yeah. And I, I tend to imagine that actually it's it's that that it's the drive that produces the song the drive is enormous it's like, um, I, like the beat you say, I, We are going to write songs on Thursday. You know what yeah. I mean? And they just would, you know.
3: Yeah, but some of it is like you're given it. It's almost like, you know, um, Don Henley was looking for the last line of, I think it was either Boys in Summer and it was um, the deadhead sticker on a Cadillac. And that was yeah. right yeah. in front of him. So sometimes yeah. they feel they're given something. And other times, a lot of it is hard work.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: So mm. it's a combination.
0: Where Mark and I were talking recently I, about Martin Amis uh, in his autobiography, he talked about literary talent is very often inherited. You know, his father was a writer, but stamina isn't always. And yeah. I've had really input yeah. <laughs> to keep doing it. Yeah. yeah,
3: that the drive is is key. But then you have yeah. Graham Nash, who said right from an early age, he and his buddy would sing. You know, when they were at school. He knew that they were going to be famous. He just knew it. There was no question. But, but also, a lot there's of them a, had a sense of destiny too.
2: Yeah, there's a sense with some of them that there was absolutely no alternative employment. I think it's uh, Michael McDonald who talks about at the age of four singing on 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 bars with his father. Just he was a performer at the age of four, and so yeah. there was no other option to the, the 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 course he took. Really,
3: exactly. I think Stevie Nicks is the same.
2: Yeah, that was it.
3: That's what they knew they were here to do.
2: Mm, mm. you've also
0: got the interesting thing that you've obviously had a lot of experience of which is that these musicians work in in these strange little um social organizations called bands which Mm -hmm. are kind of partly families partly political parties partly business arrangements all these things are all going on all the time you know and it's very difficult to hold those things together isn't it
3: yes but i think what unites them is when they're on stage and they play together the connection that they have. It's worth right. everything.
0: So they're prepared to put up with, you know, personal tensions and so forth for that. Um...
3: Yeah. To a point, I would say, but yes.
0: Right, right. You must have uh, you must have been in the room when there's been some terrible inter-band bust-ups, surely. No,
3: never. <laughs> <laughs> Come to think of it, no. <laughs> oh, really, I didn't know really? what was going on.
0: You but... could kind of feel tensions.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. It's always been my theory that with bands that they've they've always got unresolved tensions because they never talk about anything.
3: But who knows whether those tensions then get released into sort of really creative um, energy?
2: Right could be
3: part of it.
2: Well, I think somebody, it might have been the section on Eric Clapton, you talk about how turmoil is the trigger. Mm -hmm. I think for him it was emotional stress was often what what, uh, inspired him to write songs. Mm -hmm. Would that be true of a lot of people, do you think?
3: Um, Probably. I'm trying to think of anybody else. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure. You know, that's all part of the drive, isn't it? Yeah. And it's self-expression and it's, you know, you think of – the Rumours album, everything that was going on then, that created that album, really. You know, everybody yeah. busting up and then coming with somebody else and then, you know, it's uh, that, that created um, that huge, huge album to be such a success.
2: But in a, they were in a sort of unique position, really, of so much success that there was so yeah. much dependent on their remaining together that they would put up with unbelievable tensions yeah. and difficulties in yeah. order to, for, for the sake of the common good, you know.
3: Right. Right.
2: I mean, any I other band with less success was, would have split up straight away, I'm sure.
3: That's it. And I'm, I'm sure they still had that buzz, you know, when they were actually playing on stage.
0: Did you ever feel res- personal resentment at the kind of, uh, at the amount of attention on them?
3: Well, only in as much as, because I was the only one that had children. Right. And so it meant that often we didn't see Mick for a long time. He'd, you know, still be in Hollywood, they'd be in, you know, still recording or this or that. And you know, that's cocaine came in a in a big way at that time too. It was kind of dripping off the walls in every studio. And um and so there was that. And so as a mother to two small children in a different country, yeah, there was that sort of feeling sometimes. You know, I was pleased for them, like really pleased and pleased for Mick, But I think it's hard. If I hadn't have had children, it would have been different.
0: Right, I can imagine. Mm. So yours were the only children in the in the kind of orbit of that. Uh, yeah. Really,
2: uh,
3: yeah. And we—that's well, quite unusual,
2: know, really, very really unusual. unusual.
3: And um, you know, sometimes the kids would come to the studio. Sometimes, you know, and obviously when I'd be on tour, they'd be on tour with me, and they'd have their little bags of colours and things to paint or whatever, for the flight. And they just toured. They knew what it was like to tour. But I was the one with kids and you can't keep kids quiet the whole time. So I've always had that slight pressure. Um, It was different.
2: God, that sounds impossible, actually, to me, taking kids on a tour. I think it must have been (laughs) so difficult, really. It
3: was in the early days because we had to drive from place to place. You know, before sort of when when we were living in England, and it was really you know pretty basic.
0: Yeah. yeah. So the, this book, as you say, you you did a kind of earlier version quite a mm-hmm. few years ago, didn't it?
3: Mm-hmm. I mean, how were these
0: interviews? How did you get them? it just just happening to be, just happening to be with people and say, let's just have a quick chat about
2: originally. When yeah, I did it,
3: 35 it was thirty five years ago. It's between right. nineteen eighty eight and nineteen ninety. And um, it was, you know, say for Joni Mitchell uh, that, you know, I knew the manager, excuse me. And um, and so it was it was easy to get pretty much everybody I got either because my second husband played with Crosby Stills and Nash, Bonnie Raitt, um, Dylan, just a whole lot of people. So I knew how to get hold of those people and ask them and they were all totally into it. And um, very...
2: Uh, what did you tell them that you were looking for, particularly? Because when you're interviewing somebody, obviously they, they want to know what, what direction it's driving in. It.
3: Yeah, well, I said, it, uh, because it was, it was a PhD dissertation to begin with. And, um, and I said, my, what I'm trying to find is the connection between creativity and spirituality, because I believe there is a connection. And so they were really up for it. And, right. of course, easy getting George, you know, and once they knew all the, probably got about, I don't know, 15, it was pretty easy. And then after that, when they found out who else had been um, interviewed.
2: They wanted to be in it. They wanted to be easy. in it. Suddenly, oh, it's always the same. Yeah, once you say, oh, I've got yeah. so-and-so in the bag.
3: Oh, then I must. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, but it so was how, great. How, how, with, this, with this book, say the interviews with Joni, in fact, there's eight of them that I've got, where I've got the whole interview. That had never been um heard or seen of before. They were just right. kind of spiralled away for all those years.
2: Right. So, but the majority of those people you knew, I guess, were there some that you'd never met and you just wanted to just wanted to include them?
3: Hey, John Lee Hooker. Yeah. I'd not met him before. Um, you know, Buddy Guy. The, there were lots I hadn't met before. Some, like Peter Gabriel, I had to do over the phone because he was in England and I was living in LA. Um, so yeah.
2: And who it was, was who were you particularly impressed by
3: Joni Mitchell right. was great uh, uh, very eloquent Don Henley was a really good interview too yes he's very he good
2: elo- there was a bit yeah. in the Don Henley interview where he talks about how they get calls at his office from people who say they were married to him or that they're the mother of his children or whatever and you thought yeah. oh my god who would how who would possibly want this life with that kind of uh, misery going yeah. on
3: yeah yeah, that was interesting. Um, I think because when I was actually transcribing them, you know, before for this book, there were a lot of things that I'd forgotten about because a lot I hadn't even listened to for so long. Um, and it was just so inspiring. I think I felt really inspired by everybody.
0: It's very thought, interesting that if you ever listened to a really old interview, you did. Mm-hmm. You listened to it with completely fresh ears. If you mm, hear it 20 right. years later, you, there's things you miss very often. Yep. <laughs> yes.
3: You're absolutely right. And then with this book as well, I got some new people because I wanted it to be shown the difference between the music world then, 35 years ago, and how it compares to now.
0: And how? how so and what, what did you conclude?
3: Well, we've got Spotify, you know, we've, which makes it a whole completely different. People aren't so reliant on record companies. Um, you know social media mm-hmm. I think it was Atticus someone said if the Beatles came today would they be as famous maybe they wouldn't have that many followers and you know they're you know, it's just so different
2: and there's also somebody, trying to get- I think it's Egg done. White there's a very good interview with Egg White the songwriter I think yes. it's him that says that in the world of Spotify he said there's no such thing as loyalty so that was really interesting because all the people you interviewed in the early days were people who had loyal followings who who, who put up with them even through a succession of bad albums they stuck with them you know, but now there's that, that loyalty just the moment you hear something you don't like say I'll switch off to somebody else that's made a big difference isn't it?
3: It's huge, yeah, yeah, and much harder for musicians to actually be able to make money from their recordings. Um, but how, you know, how do you?
0: How do you feel though? When you, you've known that kind of 60s and early 70s generation so well and watched them mm. become absolutely enormous and so forth. How do you feel? How do you respond when you nowadays, when you look at somebody like Taylor Swift, who's just incredibly successful? Yeah. And you wonder, how long can she do that for? Do you yeah. ever think about that?
3: No, no. No, because I'm not so involved in the sort of, um, you know, younger generation of musicians. Some, yeah, but I don't, because there's so many and I come across, you know, some, um, which, which, uh, you know, I mean, I, Adele of course was an obvious when she sort of was really sort of big and, um, I'm sure she probably still is big, but, you know, having new, new sounds, I'm not, I'm not so, um, up on that, but, um, Jacob Collier, who I interviewed in the book, Mm -hmm. Um, and I went to go and see him play in Bristol, and I was just amazed, you know, the energy and all everything about him. I did see Graham Nash just recently, playing um, in Covent Garden, Um, and beautiful, you know. Although it was a shame that uh, you know David Crosby died, but the people that uh, two people that he had with him, he they still did these harmonies that were just gorgeous.
2: I thought the Graham Nash interview was one of the best in the whole book actually I thought he was terrific.
1: Did you? He, yeah, yeah he sure. talks
2: about looking at the cracks in the ceiling and his bedroom ceiling was a child and, and yeah. how his imagination would kind of run from that and then a very sweet yeah. thing about the death of John Lennon he said one of the saddest things about the death of John Lennon was that, that all the songs that John Lennon was going to write that we would never hear, which I thought was a very yeah. interesting point. You know, something that he'd be halfway through and somebody hadn't even started. You know, yeah.
3: mm. and yet but, there's uh, a new new song that they've got that just came from a little bit of John playing a piano.
2: Yeah, that's right. But
3: I can't remember what it's called. Now and then. Now, um, do you
2: think there was a golden age in the, uh, looking back on on that uh, on the, all the periods you were writing about? Was there one particular time that was your your favourite for any reason?
3: Um, I loved the sixties. I loved all the that real rock and roll stuff, you know, just uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I, I think, um, I don't know. It, it'd be good to ask someone who's really like uh, my granddaughter, who's eighteen. You know, what does she listen to? And the interesting thing she did say, um, you know, you ought to ch- uh, check out Phoebe Bridges. Hmm. And um, I thought, oh, great idea. Uh, but trying to get hold of her, got hold of her mum, but, you know, and Phoebe was very keen, but because now they don't have just a manager, they have a team.
0: Oh, I, I, the, yes. everybody, everybody's oh. got people. Everybody's yeah. got people. If you right. hear the expression, I have to talk
2: to his people, forget it.
3: Yeah. It'll never happen. That's, it. <laughs> That's right. No way. No, no, Once no.
2: Once there's that many people involved, no decision could ever be made.
3: Yes. So, so tell me,
0: you've got an 18-year-old granddaughter. Um, mm-hmm. How would you feel if she left school or college or whatever and and went to live the life that you went to live when you were 17 or whatever?
3: Hey, go for it, I'd say.
2: <laughs> but then again, she's your granddaughter, not your daughter's.
3: <laughs> so your
2: responsibility isn't that acute.
3: Right, one of them. Yeah. In fact, she's very musical too. So um, it comes out.
2: <laughs> yeah. But it does seem amazing that you were allowed to do the things you were allowed to do in this day and age.
3: Yes. Yeah. I, I, exactly. Like everybody's so much, you know, so much more hands-on. I don't know with their children, and it's different. But well, we should ask you. Market,
2: we- I just forgot, we forgot to ask you about Mick Fleetwood. You married him twice, didn't you?
3: Yes, it sounds romantic, but it wasn't. <laughs> it we wasn't. Needed to get, we needed to get green cards.
2: Oh, <laughs> right. right.
3: <laughs> First time I've told anyone.
2: <laughs> oh, right. okay.
3: We were still friends, you know, it was, it was tricky. It was a kind of rocky time. But the great thing is we're still great friends, so, yep. you know. Right. And we can laugh at things.
0: Well, look, it's been. Terrific. And
3: you done a nice little sort of piece in the audiobook, book, you know, just now, just recently. So, um, yeah.
2: Very good. Oh, it's been lovely talking to you. There's the book. There it is Icons of Rock in Their yes. Own Words by
0: Jenny Boyd.
2: Yeah. Out yeah. now.
0: This podcast was brought to you by The Word. only from rustolium